Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. On today's show, the BIV tech panel featuring Glue Technology Society's Linda Focus and Electron Communications' Matthew Klippenstein. They're going to break down everything from the launch of Disney Plus to the debut of Google Stadia, that new gaming platform that the tech giant has just launched. We'll also have a discussion about how BC is leading the way in adopting zero emission vehicles. Then Tantalus Lab CEO Dan Sutton joins the podcast to talk about sustainability within the cannabis industry and the prospects of smaller licensed producers breaking into big retail markets like Ontario. This is one year into legalization and maybe that big promise has been a little slow on the draw so far. Before we get into that, let's speak to the technology panel. And now joining us to talk about the latest industry news in the tech sector, it is Linda Focus. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society and Matthew Klippenstein, an engineer and a consultant at Electron Communications. Linda, Matthew, thank you both for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, Tyler. So I don't know if you guys jumped on this, but uh, Disney Plus launched last week. They claimed that they had 10 million subscribers at first day. Uh, for you guys, though, I, I, I want to hear a show of hands or I guess see a show of hands which doesn't really translate on a podcast. But let me know, any of you guys sign up for Disney Plus at this point in the game? I did not. Uh, not yet. I forgot about uh, it. As soon as our kids see Frozen 2, though, I'm sure that they will insist on watching Frozen 1. And my child's 20, so oh, okay. I hope he's not going to watch Frozen anything anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why I missed it, right? I'm yeah. just out of that wheelhouse. Right. I, I think, you know, just from everything I've heard... Uh, it's going to be consumed uh, in such a way that it's going to be the one giving Netflix a run for its money. But I don't know, some technical issues? I mean, do you think this is really going to be stymie interest in what we're uh, seeing right now uh, with regards to some of the hiccups that first week? And then now we're even hearing some reports of accounts being hacked and uh, released onto the dark web. Yeah, I think that um, is this what we're seeing a media company getting into the streaming game and they sort of dropped the ball on the tech. They spent $3 billion on BAM tech to get that streaming piece dealt with. That mm-hmm. obviously didn't flow as smoothly as it has for other BAM tech companies like HBO. Um, the fact that they have every Disney account that one might sign up to, the resort properties, the store, and now streaming, all hooked into one account mm. uh, and didn't do any work on two-factor authentication, didn't remind people to change passwords, left them open. The fact that hackers were jumping right at this within hours of the streaming service opening, these guys were ready to... Um, storm into those accounts and take them over. So uh, a lot of mistakes made on Disney's front, and they're doing a horrible job on the PR side, right? They're not, the scripts Mm. aren't very compassionate to the customers. Mm -hmm. Um, So I find that interesting as well. And then none of that will make any difference because it's Disney. And where else are people (laughs) going to go to see Frozen and all those shows their kids and themselves might want to see? So it'll calm down. They'll figure it out. Life will be Mm -hmm. fine in the Disney world. Change your passwords. But make but it unique. Is that just the case, like Matthew, like the demand for content is too much for anybody to pass up at this point? You mentioned the kid factor here. Right. So I think uh, the demand for content, like the fact that they have the Simpsons back catalog, I mean, that's another major incentivizer for people of my generation. That'll get me over that. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so I think there is going to be a drive for content. On the security side, I think it's a little bit challenging in that for, for Disney or Netflix to succeed, generally you want to have as many people signing up. 
which means making it as easy as possible for them to sign up. I could imagine that many uh, many uh, clients might be like, "What's this two-factor authentication? And why would I need a different password for my you know Disney Cruise, Disney Park versus Disney Plus uh, accounts?" Uh, so I think this is one of these things where, uh, as uh, Linda said. Uh, Disney will totally survive because the, the the product is 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 good enough on its own, and it's kind of the human nature, the fact that we all tend to be, you know, lazy apart in those one or two aspects of life where we're totally hardcore on something, and so um, they'll survive. The content will uh, will will pull them through, and um, I, I'm sure that uh, we'll have uh, many other instances with you know other you know gaming platforms and other things where. Uh, passwords get breached regularly. Yeah, and Iger was pretty um, public about this. He was all bullish on bringing the outside tech in-house, making this streaming thing happen quickly. Disney knew they were behind the ball on streaming and they're trying to get caught up. But when he sends out a tweet saying we're ready to scale mm-hmm. and they're not ready to scale, it's like, come on. Yeah. you know. And we don't see these problems with Apple didn't have these problems obviously a company like netflix doesn't so i don't know if what we see is media trying to play in the tech space and this is what happens when you're new in the space or if disney was just that much more popular than any other streaming service that's ever hit i'll the just airwaves. say uh here in canada with crave tv uh years and years into it still constant hiccups on uh, that platform so really? i don't know it's it, it's maybe uh, a bit of a contrast between what the resources are in disney versus a media company like bell up here in canada trying mm. to get into the streaming game but i just have the, the sinking suspicion that disney plus you're going to be okay like, uh, despite all the uh, the, the yeah. PR problems with a lot of this, I think people just can't resist the content uh, that's mm-hmm. going to be going over these streaming waves here. Um, mm-hmm. If we're going to talk about other big, big giants out there, Google just launched its Google Stadia offering. So that means that they're going to allow you to play a games uh, with access to tons of stuff. I think 22 to launch, but you don't need a console, which is kind of the thing that I'm curious about here. I don't know. Matthew, from your perspective, is hardware, is that on its way out eventually? And and I realize I'd say a smartphone that you would need for Google Stadia, a TV that you would need for Google Stadia. It's all hardware, but are we moving away from, I guess, the console question? Uh, that's a very good question. I, I first would note that um, Stadia is the plural form of stadium, kind of like bacterium, bacteria. So that was a cool little uh, little thing I unearthed in my, in my research here. So... Um, with respect to being agnostic on the controller, on the platform, I think that uh, we are past the, uh, largely past the era where the platform is the, is the dominant sort of monopoly. You know, Microsoft famously bought Minecraft a number of years ago and has kept it absolutely open platform. Um, and so Google has, with its Wasabi Green uh, colored controller, uh, gone after apparently uh, the non male teenager to older than teenager uh, market. So I think uh, even though the there's a tremendous benefit to not requiring a, a set controller, uh, there still are ways for Google to play, to gain accessibility, and perhaps uh, gain market share with people who aren't in the, in the Xbox, uh, PlayStation, you know, exact target market. Yeah, what we're looking at is really amazing technology. You're gaming on a on a controller that's wired for now, but it, they're saying Google was saying it's going to be wireless in the future. And you're playing your game 
is processed on computers that are thousands of miles away from you, sent back a video stream right. in near zero latency. So it's it's an amazing bit of technology, all on old internet infrastructure. Wait till mm-hmm. 5G hits. And right. I think we have to wait till 5G till we get the consoles out of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not we're not quite there yet. But it but maybe this is um. Uh, this is certainly the move towards streaming gaming. We can now pick up a game on any device we're holding. Um, and I can definitely see a time when that PS4 collecting dust in my living room doesn't need to be there. Yeah, it's just interesting because we're seeing a lot of the news going on with regards to the PS5 and the next Xbox generation as well. Those companies are still investing a lot in the console market. I, I don't know if Google Stadia is going to be this first salvo here is going to get rid of that market, though. It is notable, though, that with this, I was looking into this. So if you were going to stream games for 22 hours on average a week, <laughs> it would cost you in terms of just data more than a terabyte a month. And uh, for my own uh, TELUS accounts, I have uh, one terabyte of data a month I, uh, with regards to home internet. Never even gotten close to that, though. Mm-hmm. So it's just like kind of a weird thing to say, well, if I was going to game for 22 hours, is this going to have to be a consideration for some people if they're really hardcore into that and what their data usage is? Oh, my goodness. Now add more than one person in a family. You've got a, yeah. a whole host of kids and their friends gaming at your house. These data caps, this, this really only works if you don't have a data cap. Mm-hmm. And we do have data caps here still in Canada. And you de- mm-hmm. definitely, as parents and hardcore gamers, check your bill and make sure you don't have a data cap because you could be paying a lot of money for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, just think about all those stories we hear about, say, like toddlers going into those freemium games and buying like $1,000 worth of like digital coins you know for example yeah and also the the speed of our modems too like we might you got to see how fast your service is because these games streaming in 4k Mm -hmm. are going to perhaps be glitchy definitely on a low Mm -hmm. speed uh, internet connection so how old is your modem where is your modem in your house is it hiding in a glass cabinet or under a couch we need to really clean up that infrastructure within your home make sure you don't have a data cap and then Go crazy on 4K streaming. I think it's incredible technology. Whether Google decides to stick with it or not, mm-hmm. whether we really have to wait for 5G to see where this can go is another question. But Microsoft coming into the fray, Sony already there. It's not just Google playing in this space, and it is the future of gaming for sure. Mm-hmm. Any uh, temptation to give it a shot at some point, uh, Matthew? See, now, when I was in university, I decided that I would uh, deliberately avoid getting too much into gaming because the upgrade cycle on a student budget was just depressing. And so, happily, I have largely avoided uh, many of the uh, many, many an upgrade cycle since then. So, yes, so there will be a need to upgrade like 5G uh, infrastructure for sure. Uh, um, the avoidant, you know, getting past data caps, having upgraded hardware, the, the modem, uh, the telecommunications hardware in your home as well. And uh, I, I suppose the challenge would then be as the graphics improve and people want to use ever more graphics, then that will consume ever more bandwidth, right? You either play at a lower resolution without glitchiness or latency issues, or you go for the super duper, uh, you know, 4K, 8K, and uh, you suffer a little bit of a latency, which I suppose might matter for some people, but I suspect the large majority majority of casual gamers like your older folks like uh, like me who's who often go to like Mario Kart you know that yeah. that kind of a thing the 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 graphics don't have to be spectacular and that's a larger market than the you know the hardcore gamers and i think there's a there's a huge opportunity there for um the the 
what, the home-owned console to, to you know, evaporate to the cloud like so much else has. A big difference, of course, though, is you don't have to wait for the 100 gig download for Red Dead, for instance. You're not right. waiting yes, for yes. it to download yeah, yeah. and you're just dying to play and you got to keep waiting. Right. Um, but when you cancel your streaming service, your games are gone. So that's mm-hmm. a bit of a radical shift for us. So everybody, you know, remember that you're in the middle of a game and your that's account... Right dies for whatever reason speaking of that yeah so uh, i do i did note i did see that uh, star wars fans were complaining yet again that disney in its official star wars uh, movies on disney plus had had once again changed the scene where han solo shoots greedo it's one of these han shoots first um uh what uh, it's not sagas but uh conflicts in the star wars universe and uh, of course this is now the official thing so um you know they've they've kind of rewritten history about a seventh time i think for that that shot do you recall the line that they've uh, given the aliens since then uh, matthew i don't remember actually oh, what was now yeah, people. <laughs> uh, no everybody it's turned into a meme now but uh, i guess uh, greedo the assassin starts uh, exclaiming mcclunky which uh, everybody has just been laughing at but all right uh, well, okay well, why don't we wrap it up with this sure. uh, i have no segue i have no no easy no, segue. No clunky segue <laughs> yeah, right, right over? Right. Uh, it'll be a very clunky segue. And, yeah. Um, but a new report out from Electric Mobility Canada. It's revealing that BC is leading the pack for new sales of zero emission vehicles. I, I want to throw it over to you. Uh, this is very much your wheelhouse uh, here, Matthew. But tell me a little bit. I mean, how well do you think BC would be doing, though, in terms of leading these sales without all the subsidies that we have in this province versus other jurisdictions? Yes. So, um, yeah. So thanks a bunch, Tyler. So I did have the uh, the, uh, the privilege of helping Electric Mobility Canada with this. Um, uh, for, sh- for sure, we uh, sales are improved or, or, or helped along by the presence of purchase incentives. Uh, a, a deeper motivation for sales in the longer term will be BC's zero emission vehicle mandate, which requires that automakers sell a certain number of zero emission vehicles. The proportion is still quite small, but it will ratchet up to 30% in 2030, 100% in 2040. As a kind of a cool little fact, um, the goal for the province had been 10% by 2025. And since the federal incentives came in on May 1st, we have been at just a little bit above 10% of new passenger vehicle sales. That's new cars plus trucks plus um, minivans plus SUVs, CUVs. So... um, Yes, incentives certainly help. There's no disputing that. Uh, at the same time, you know, uh, even before we were the EV capital of Canada, we were the conventional hybrid capital of Canada. And so um, I would expect that BC would have still been leading the, the country, even in the absence of other policy support. We look, though, at countries like the Netherlands and uh, other areas in the world who have dropped the EV subsidies and the sales plummet. So I think mm-hmm. that perhaps... Can we attribute most of this bump to the subsidies? And are, are these cars either therefore too expensive? Mm-hmm. Do we want a cheaper EV? Uh, what's, what's the threshold for us to actually get into EV without subsidies? Because what we're pretty sure of is those subsidies aren't going to be here forever. And if we're trying to get into a country to meet our, our uh, greenhouse gas emission targets, having a federal government saying they want all of our vehicles to be EV by 2040... Mm-hmm. Do the subsidies stay around till then? How do we make that happen? Right. Do we need cheaper electric vehicles? Yeah. Which and is what Renault's doing in China, right? That's right. Let's bring them over here. Let's get these to be affordable. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a very good point. So uh, we can't expect that incentives will stay in place forever. And as you have noted, in jurisdictions where incent- incentives have been pulled away, it even happened in BC in about 2014, then sales do uh, fall significantly. 
Now that said, um, one one benefit of this kind of of, a, of an industrial policy of supporting a particular technology is that if you help it achieve scale, then the cost of technology drops significantly. So battery costs have fallen significantly. At the moment, um, most automakers are not believed to be making money on their electric vehicles. They're selling them as loss leaders to meet regulatory requirements uh, and customer demand. But uh, that will change as battery uh, batteries become cheaper. Uh, it is true, though, that achieving 10% for several months in 2020 or 2019 with incentives is altogether a different accomplishment from also hitting that 10% in that day, in, in whether it's years or months away, hopefully years, uh, where incentives are no longer in place. Uh, one very promising thing coming out of the Ford uh, Mustang Mach-E announcement on the weekend featuring Idris Elba, Stringer Bell of The Wire, um, who was a former Ford, empl- uh, Ford employee back in the UK, um, was that Ford promised that they would be profitable for this vehicle on day one. And uh, that's partly because it's a premium price. Um, it won't recoup their research costs. But the fact that automakers are now on the cusp of being able to make profits with their vehicles will also incentivize them to sell and you know, make it easier for you know, dealers to be convinced to uh, also um, ensure that customers are aware of these options. See, I was hoping that Idris Elba was tapped to do this because of his uh, appearance in the Fast and Furious movies, but uh, I, I guess I can just make that up in my own head at this point. But uh, Matthew, Linda, thank you both for joining us in the show. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Tyler. That is Linda Focke, CEO of Glue Technology Society, and Matthew Klippenstein. He's an engineer and consultant at Electron Communications. Stay with us, Dan Sutton from Tanis Labs. He joins us next to talk about sustainability within the cannabis industry. And joining us now to talk about the latest news in the cannabis industry, it is Dan Sutton, CEO of Tanalyst Labs. Dan, thanks for joining us on the show once again. Glad to be here. So I think we wanted to bring you in, talk about sustainability within the industry here, because we do know that last week, Alberta-based Freedom Cannabis, uh, they unveiled this giant facility made up of or I should say 4,500 solar panels. And they're saying that they could offset greenhouse gas emissions by 1,000 tons every year. I'm curious, though, uh, when it comes to sustainability, different industries have a different focus on it. Where do you think you guys stand right now within your industry in this focus on sustainability? Well, what's interesting is we have seen about 70% of the production infrastructure in Canada shift towards greenhouses. This is a substantial energy savings and a story that we've been telling at Tantalus Labs since inception. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of solar panels to cultivate cannabis, and the rationale is this. Oftentimes when we are doing the math on the sustainability savings or environmental uh, impact reduction of infrastructure like solar panels, it's really easy to forget about the aluminum, the glass, the photovoltaic chemicals. Solar panels don't have a substantially long shelf life. They're only uh, functional for maybe 25 or, or 30 years. And so when you look at the entire life cycle uh, of that infrastructure, what you're really doing is using a panel to convert solar energy into electricity to then power lights to then photosynthetically stimulate the growth of a plant. Uh, unfortunately, you're sort of adding a bunch of complicated middlemen in between the sun and the plant's leaves, and it's my position that there is no more efficient solar panel on Earth than 
the broad leaf of a cannabis plant. So this is sort of a bit of tech goggles by my read. I think it's a statement about human hubris. We can do lighting better than the sun. Um, and greenhouse infrastructure remains the most sustainable choice when you factor in the entire life cycle of all of that infrastructure before you ultimately get to outdoor, which is difficult in Canada. But when it was when it is done effectively and done correctly, it will be even more sustainable than greenhouse production. So when you were launching production, what were the things that you were most thinking about when it came to moving forward with Greenhouse, was it the sustainability question? Was it the mix of that and the business model that you guys wanted to pursue? Sustainability is definitely a core ethos of Tantalus Labs and the ambition to cultivate cannabis in a greenhouse environment at scale, again, without the use of pesticides and in compliance with uh, Health Canada's very strict regulations, was pretty novel when, when we were going about it initially. Um, I think the reduction of energy or electricity necessary to power lights is the really substantial impact. We probably spend maybe ten dollars or $15,000 a month on electricity for 100,000 square feet of infrastructure. If we were running that inside, that might be more like $150,000 a month. So there is obviously a substantial economic incentive to move to more efficient means of production. Uh, also, greenhouses are likely a better environment in which to grow a plant than a, than a factory. It's sort of like converting a boat into a car when you try to build an indoor cannabis production facility. But there's also a bunch of spillover costs that people don't account for. So when you run lights in an indoor facility, that creates heat. You then also need to run AC and ventilation to reduce that heat load. That requires electricity. Uh, and then there are humidity changes that are necessary. Uh, AC can dehumidify at times, and then there can be excess humidity when you're trying to heat that room up. So a whole variety of kind of follow-on costs that people rarely account for. Um, but it's absolutely my position that when it comes to agricultural efficiency, when it comes to quality product, greenhouses are the future, and they will be uh, producing the substantial amount of, of commercial cannabis production globally in sort of five to 10 years time. Well, you mentioned a moment ago, and I, I was not aware of this, but that there's been a shift towards, you know, depending more on greenhouses when it comes to this infrastructure, though, do you think that initially the industry got started with the incumbent infrastructure, just because it was that it was the incumbent infrastructure, people were going with what they knew? It's interesting, because we have seen sort of 30 years of substantial technological advantages in uh, indoor cannabis cultivation. Now, Keep in mind that the primary rationale for cultivating cannabis indoors is likely stealth. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we've got new lighting, you know, new ventilation strategies, new hydroponics infrastructure that is typical of, I think, BC's rise to prominence as a, as a globally competitive quality cannabis production region. Um, so I think people kind of got entrenched in that thinking. They sort of said, this is how we've been doing it. The, you know, the, the first step is a bunker. The next logical conclusion is a really large bunker. Um, it's also... When, when we were setting out to build our greenhouse infrastructure, we realized that especially around security and quality assurance, there were a lot of specifics that we were going to need to innovate. We couldn't really take off the shelf technology. We had to come up with new solutions uh, to problems that are greenhouse specific for cannabis. But all of that, once again, yields this 90% reduction in energy usage, which there go, therefore has a huge economic advantage as well. So I think that people just perhaps they weren't thinking outside the box. Fair enough. Now, let me ask you this. I'm coming at it as a novice, so please educate me here. But in, in terms of uh, greenhouse production, 
does it matter what part of the country you're in? Like, how does it matter uh, with regards? Because it's a huge country in Canada. So I'm wondering where maybe people are concentrating their production. Yeah, this is a great question. And I think this thesis was best summed up uh, in a, in a, one of my mentors told me, uh, I can grow you pineapples in the Arctic. They're just going to be expensive pineapples. Sure. <laughs> so regional selection is essential when figuring out where to position a new greenhouse. Even things like aspect to the sun make a, a huge difference in greenhouse production. Here in the Fraser Valley, uh, in places like southern Vancouver Island, in places like Kootenai Region and and uh, and the Okanagan, you're you're going to get a huge amount of light. You're going to get a, a relatively limited band of fluctuation between winter and summer, uh, relative to places like Ontario, Alberta, and Quebec. Anyway, and so absolutely, greenhouse operators and and cannabis greenhouse construction projects should focus on regions that really are you're probably notable for growing other crops here in the Fraser Valley. We're really good, good at growing tomatoes and green peppers and bedding plants. And that's probably a good sign. Uh, it's also reasonable to suggest that good wine regions probably become good cannabis regions. You can get a pretty good degree of environmental control and especially removal of heat load or cooling in a greenhouse infrastructure with advanced ventilation and sort of the technologies that have evolved around greenhouse production in more finicky regions, let's say. Um, but ultimately, if the region that you're in is good for cultivating other crops, it's probably going to be good for cannabis. Okay. So maybe I'll, I'll go back to what kicked off this conversation, though. It's just this idea of, about stability or sustainability within the industry, though. Is it kind of a question that you think is more important within your industry than it would be in some other industries in Canada? Or is it just following kind of a, a business model that that works here? Well, speaking from the perspective of Tantalus Labs, you know, we always try to find an audience and find a customer that sees the world through the same lens that we do. And being probably younger entrepreneurs and, and of the millennial generation, we realize that sustainability needs to be baked into every new business plan that we build. Ultimately, I... I will always pay a premium. I will always do extra work to seek out a sustainable offering when I'm making a purchase of any kind. And so I think that the consumer is going to decide. The customer is going to tell you how important sustainability is. And when people buy from a company like Tantalus Labs, they know that they're investing in that sustainability technology and further R&D. We're always looking at ways we can get more efficient, streamlining our packaging, finding more uh, opportunities to to create a more sustainable outcome for our business and for our consumers. And I think people vote with their dollars. And ultimately, we are asking consumers, I think we are all as a society asking consumers to make sustainable choices in the service of a brighter tomorrow. And that's uh, something we believe very deeply at Tantalus Labs and something that I think has been typical of our of our early success in this industry. Well, uh, you have a busy week in front of you, Dan, and I, I guess I can use this as kind of a segue into my next topic here, but just kind of expansion into different markets. Uh, for a uh, producer such as yours, I, I find out that you guys will be moving into the Ontario market now. Uh, tell me about maybe where they started and where they are right now and why it makes sense for you guys to be moving into this market as of now. Yeah, so when we saw Ontario's decision to limit, you know, to up to 25 stores at the outset of legalization and in, in the early days, they actually didn't open stores till about midway through this year. Um, but those stores have done exceptionally well. So it's a sort of artificial oligopolization to some degree, yet somehow the transaction volume in Ontario for each of those stores is really substantial and also through their e-commerce platform is really substantial, especially relative to provinces like British Columbia. So Ontario today probably sells about 35 or 40% 
percent of all of the cannabis in Canada. It's Canada's largest uh, cannabis market, despite having substantially less stores than provinces like Alberta. But I think this just goes to show the population centers are where you want to be. And in Ontario, there's a substantial demand for British Columbian products specifically. People go into the stores and ask for BC Bud by name. And so it becomes an interesting sort of domestic national export economy for us to be able to sell cannabis in other provinces, bring those revenues back here and create jobs in British Columbia. So uh, we're really excited for Ontario. We know a lot of consumers are really excited for our product in Ontario, and uh, we're looking forward to having our first retail products in the OCS and in the retailers in Ontario in the next few weeks. Now, if we do the math, of course, Ontario has, I think, around a triple the population of BC, but I, I still think that uh, proportionally BC is still being outflanked by other provinces in terms of just retail sales. What continues to be the challenge here in BC? So in British Columbia, first and foremost, we just don't have anywhere near enough stores. Uh, in Ontario, people have, have sort of managed to filter into the small number of stores, and they are also doing uh, very swift business in their e-commerce offerings. So in British Columbia, the only thing that we can do is is give that consumer ultimately a more convenient offering than they would get from alternative sources. I think it is fair to recognize that on, uh, Ontario probably has less of a convenience oriented or more deeply, less deeply entrenched black market than British Columbia. Uh, black market cannabis is more readily available here than it would be in Ontario, apparently. Um, and so that is a factor that we have to combat in BC. But ultimately, with sort of 60, 60 stores or so in British Columbia, we could easily sustain six or 700. And it's really time to get moving and, and start to license some of these entrepreneurs that have been waiting to get on the start line uh, now for, for some of them for months. So as a BC-based licensed producer, how much are you eyeballing the prospect of, say, global exports as other countries begin to legalize recreational cannabis or even medicinal marijuana, as we do know that is going on in other countries? Yeah, it's very interesting. I think it's very early days. Uh, for us or for anybody and there have been some really substantial promises made by larger LPs about the size of the export markets uh, they haven't really shaped up to date and ultimately hanging your business thesis on future legislation is always a bit of a risky prospect um, but Talents Labs is keeping very close attention to it we know that there are some uh, excellent regions in, in Europe that are looking to purchase cannabis from Canada. Uh, we know that, that that could diversify to South America. Eventually, it could diversify to Asia. And so this one day will become a globalized cannabis market. I think it's just something we don't need to uh, to rush on. It's, it's going to take 10 years for us to really understand the landscape of what that will be. But the idea of good BC bud on the streets of Berlin, for instance, or Denmark or Amsterdam. Uh, we are very excited by that prospect and, and can't wait to offer those customers the same value proposition that we do here in Canada. BC bud in Berlin. I like the alliteration right there, Dan. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. And that is it for the show today. Thank you for listening. In the meantime, get your friends to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. For now, I'm Tyler Orton and we'll be back tomorrow.